This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Large wildfires are more common in the West these days. The region has experienced a 250% increase in the last three decades. Climate change is a culprit, and a new report calls for big changes in the face of this new normal. One idea, that communities at risk of burning should bear more of the costs. These forested places are booming in Colorado. Tanya Schonagel specializes in fire ecology at CU Boulder's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. And Tanya, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. So the western U.S. has seen rising temperatures and longer fire seasons, three months longer since the 1970s. It has led to what your paper calls the new era of western wildfires. What do you mean? Say more about that. Yeah, we really are entering a new era of Western wildfires. And since the 70s, we've seen dramatic increases in warming. Colorado experienced its warmest march on record since 1895. Snow melt is occurring one to four weeks earlier, which affects drying and fire risk in the high country. And fire seasons are lengthening three months longer. And so this is translating to this dramatic uptick in wildfire. And what's coming down the road is going to be even much more. So estimates are that by 2050, we may expect more warming than we've experienced since the 70s, two and a half to five degrees, which of course, you can do the translation is going to mean warmer summers, earlier snow melt, more drought and more wildfires. And at the same time, not only is the West growing, But these very critical areas in the West are growing. Wooies, wildland urban interfaces, sort of where the city meets the forest. Uh, That is to say, many more people are living in fire-prone areas. That's right. Um, We've seen a dramatic increase not only in temperature and wildfire, but the number of people living in these fire-prone areas. So Colorado is second in the West in terms of the percent of the wildland urban interface that's developed. About 20% of that is developed. And that means that as more wildfires occur, more and more people are going to be facing these wildfires. And so in our paper, we ask the question, what are approaches that we can take to help manage residential development fuels and wildfire to help communities and ecosystems better adapt to these changes. And we'll get to that in a moment. Uh, but you say that the warming will continue. Will the growth in the wooies continue? Well, that's a really good question. Um, as I said, 20% is developed now. That means we have an 80% of the wildland or an urban interface that could be developed. And if we look at trends as they've been, there's a good chance if this development continues without change that ever more people are going to be in, in, in the risk of running into wildfires. And so about 30% of the fires burned in Colorado were in the wildland urban interface just since 2000. So we predict that about 40% of this area by 2040 is going to experience increased probability of burning 
Right, because history tells us that indeed these places burn, and there are a lot of high-profile fires outside, for instance, Colorado Springs and Boulder and Fort Collins that demonstrate that of late. I want to get to perhaps the trickiest recommendation that you make in this report, which is really shifting who pays for wildfire prevention and response. Um, Let me just quote it. The majority of home building on fire-prone lands occurs in large part because incentives are misaligned, where risks are taken by homeowners and communities, but others bear much of the cost if things go wrong. That is to say, there are federal disaster declarations and taxpayers as a whole pick up the tab. Why is that not the right course, in your opinion? Yeah, well, suppression costs are significant. They're about 50% of the Forest Service budget. They are about $1 to $2 billion per year. And our recommendation or our suggestion is realigning these incentives because right now federal agencies pick up the tab for protection of communities from wildfire. So this leaves little incentive for counties to reduce vulnerability of communities to wildfire, to reduce the expansion of development into these fire-prone areas. So sharing suppression costs with counties will be very unpopular, of course, but it would provide a very strong incentive to curtail residential growth into these fire-prone areas. And let's and follow it, that to its its log- logical conclusion. So if counties, if municipalities are picking up potentially more of the cost, that becomes an incentive for them to change perhaps their building requirements, their materials requirements, Uh, Maybe it taps their budgets more. Would you expect taxes to go up in the WUI? I'm thinking of places like Evergreen or Conifer. Right. Um, That's another possibility that taxes may go up. There may be ways in which that uh, cost sharing may be borne more by those folks who are living in the wildland urban interface or by the counties who are responsible for the levels of development and the ways in which Uh, those homes are developed and those communities are developed within these fire-prone areas. I find it fascinating that you recommend something of a fire equivalent of a floodplain map. So if I want to know whether my home is vulnerable to flood, there are any number of maps I can turn to that tell me the level of vulnerability. Um, Such a thing is not as clear, I guess, when it comes to wildfire. Is that right? Well, you know, it's interesting that we have a really well-developed way and to deal with flooding. There's flood hazard mapping, which is part of the National Flood Insurance Program, yeah. and it provides the basis for building regulations and flood insurance requirements. And we could have the same thing for wildfire, but we don't. So in California is an example where they have this wildfire hazard mapping, and uh, they develop fire-resistant building codes in areas of very high fire hazard areas. So they also can be used to restrict growth from some areas or requiring building codes in other areas. And again, with 80% of the wildland urban interface in Colorado yet undeveloped, those kinds of maps can be really useful in trying to figure out how we can better adapt our communities so that they can withstand fire and how to reduce the costs of protecting them from fire. And that's a question of where 
building occurs and the nature of that building, the nature of the materials, the nature of the steps homeowners take to clear trees from near those those homes. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Tanya Schonagel from CU Boulder. She's one of the authors of a, a new paper that is basically a pretty clear warning to folks who live in the wildland urban interface, this sort of place where the city meets the forest. Adapt is the, the title of, of her paper. Adapt to more wildfire in Western North American forests as climate changes. Uh, you also recommend letting more fires simply burn, and you recommend some prescribed burns as well. Um, that might not fly with some folks who are concerned about wildfire and are concerned about air quality. Why those recommendations? Well, uh, again, it it's a way in which we are recommending a shift from primarily fighting fire. And we're not suggesting that we should no longer suppress fires. We need to still protect communities to the ability that we can. But the majority of our efforts have been placed on suppressing fires, and we're recommending a shift to promoting more wildfires away from people where it's safe and for igniting more prescribed fires because more fire on the landscape under more controlled conditions can help reduce fire risk by reducing fuels for future fires in the near in the near future. So if you let a fire burn that isn't really near people, how does that wind up uh, helping in the long run protect people? Uh, explain that for me. Yeah, so um, if if a wildfire burns in an area, um, it, it it basically combusts those fuels. And so the chance of a wildfire burning through that area in the next few years is, is much reduced. And I think about this a lot when I drive out on I-70 and I look at the front range and I can start seeing scars from previous fires along the front range. And I think to myself, wow we're really breaking up the landscape and the continuity of forest fuels. And although those are difficult to bear when they happen and they're terrifying and they're dangerous, once those fires have happened, um, especially the ones that are away from people and um, communities, uh, they will have the ability to help buffer the system uh, from further fire spread in the future. And you're saying take some of that under our own control by doing prescribed burns and letting burn when it's safe to do so. Is this paper um, a guilt trip for people who live in the wildland urban interface? We certainly don't want that to be the message. And um, I myself have lived in the wildland urban interface. I, I've lived up Four Mile Canyon years ago. Um, and I, I understand why people want to live in the wildland urban interface. Um, what we're calling for is a way in which those communities can live in those beautiful areas, um, but yet do it in a way where we're more adapted to the expectation of more wildfire. And I think we've been living under the um, idea that, you know, we can sort of have our cake and eat it too. And I think we need to realize now that, that those communities are at great risk and we need to take action now to protect them. 
Before we go, we have about a minute. Um, tick off two or three changes you'd love to see in those communities that aren't happening, uh, in your opinion, fast enough. Well, planning can play a really important role, and there's the Community Planning Assistance for Wildfire, which is underway in three counties in Boulder, um, uh, three, three? in Colorado. Oh, in Colorado, okay. Boulder County, Summit, and Huerfano, southwest of Pueblo. Yeah. It's doing a great job of widening roads, putting more access, um, and escape roads, clustering developments, creating fire breaks. And there's also things that are happening on the ground uh, at the individual level of homeowners um, creating mitigation around their homes. And Boulder County Wildfire Partners is a fantastic model for this, where they help homeowners prepare for wildfire, and they have about 1,200 participants. And those are things that are on the ground that I see as real bright spots and hope that those kinds of programs and funding for those programs uh, can can grow and become a much more broader part of the landscape. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Tanya Schoenagel is a landscape ecologist at CU Boulder's Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research. You can find a link to her paper about Western wildfires and climate change at cprnews.org. Scott Mercier made a choice 20 years ago. He refused to take performance-enhancing drugs, a decision that ended his professional bike racing career. While his U.S. postal team went on to dominate the Tour de France, winning seven times, Mercier went on to become a financial advisor in Grand Junction. But he has gained belated recognition for his anti-doping stand, and Mercier became fast friends with cycling's most notorious drug cheat. This weekend, Mercier has helped bring young racers to compete on the Western Slope. And Scott Mercier joins us from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Welcome to the program. Thanks, Ryan. Good morning. You were nearing the pinnacle of your professional cycling in 1997 when you refused to take performance-enhancing drugs and dropped out. Will you take us back to that moment when you said no? Actually, it's almost exactly 20 years ago. The Tour of Romandy is happening in Switzerland right now. And it was kind of a drawn-out process. Um, at the end of that race, the team doctor, Pedro Salaya, put, put me, uh, I w- went into his hotel room and he gave me a training schedule. And the schedule was about two weeks long. Every day involved high miles, about 100 plus or minus every day. And he had intervals. And on each day of this calendar, he would have dots or stars, and he pulls out a Ziploc baggie, and it's filled with these clear vials of liquid and these green pills. And I'm still nervous, actually, thinking about this, because I'm very it's very visual to me even today. And he asked me if I know how to inject myself. And uh, I said, you know, no, I quit using heroin back when I was a cow. Um, and he kind of laughs, and he says, well... You know, he gives me some instructions on how to inject myself. He says, when you go through customs, I was living in South Africa at this time, put them in your front pocket and tell everyone they're they're B vitamins. So at that time, I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I knew that I wanted to get out of his hotel room. And I'm still sweating thinking about this today because it was such a, you know, it was like a fork in the road for me. I went, I was living in South Africa, and I asked my wife, I said, you know, what do you think? And she graciously, graciously said, you know, it's your career, you got to do what you want. 
And I kind of decided right then and there that that would be my last season on U.S. Postal. Was that a hard decision to come to? Not really. Um, it, you know, racing in Europe is is a lot of fun, uh, but it's also really hard. And for me, I don't know what kind of gave me this foresight where I started playing out the future if I took that first dose. I was making just under a hundred grand, so I was making good money, doing what I wanted to do. And then you would start getting this. For me, I felt like I would start getting this kind of addictive power, where you get addicted to the strength, and that it was one step on a merry-go-round that I could never get off, or a toilet bowl where you're sort of circling and circling and circling. And I just thought, I don't, I don't know how this ends. Um, and I knew that to take that step. There's no way that I could get around just having to live my life as a lie. Of course, you, you know how this story ends now because hindsight is twenty twenty, and and that for so many this ended in disgrace. But I have to think it was extremely difficult, extremely painful to see how well your teammates were doing and the adulation that surrounded them and to think, I, I, I passed that up. Am I, am I putting words in your mouth? Was that difficult? No, not not at all. I mean, huh. it, the the decade following, um, I was living in Hawaii and working in my dad's restaurant company as an assistant manager, making less than half of what I was earning. Complete anonymity. There's not really a training program from going from an elite athlete to professional athlete to real everyday life, the struggles that everyday people face all the time. And I'm watching my former team go on to become arguably one of the most dominant teams in any sport, period. And I thought, my goodness, what have I done? What have I done to my family? What have I done to my family financially? And the adulation you mentioned was probably the most grating thing to me because you know what they're doing to achieve this. And you know that they're just lying right through their teeth to achieve, achieve this. But on the other hand, they also put in a lot of hard work, too. So we, we can't forget that. Yeah, I want to say that a year after you left the team, you were replaced by the man who became the face of doping and cycling, Lance Armstrong. He won seven yeah. t- tours to France and was stripped of his wins for doping. Um, the, the two of you were obviously on different sides of this issue. But in a strange twist, you have become friends. You even ride together. How in the world did that happen? It's it's kind of a weird story, really. Um, I had recently joined Twitter, I don't know, probably four years ago, and I had all of maybe 200 followers, and I noticed Lance Armstrong started following me. So I thought that was a little bizarre. Um, this was right after the USADA, the U.S. Anti-Doping Agency, had stripped him of his results. Uh, he was still quite bitter and um, very litigious. And I did not know him very well. We were certainly acquaintances, but we were we were not friends. And I thought, well, I wonder what this is about. So I sent him a direct message. Hey, Lance, it's Scott. What's up? Uh, give me a call if you need anything. And he said, hey, I'm in Aspen for the summer. We've got lots to talk about. And I thought to myself, what do we have to talk about? We don't really have anything to talk about. And I started playing out the the risks of going to meet with Lance kind of in my own little conspiracy theory mind, you start thinking, okay, here's the little guy in Grand Junction, and uh, here's the guy that has more money than God that says we have a lot to talk about. And I kind of thought, well, sure, why not go see what he has to say? 
I was nervous about it. I thought, gosh, is he going to be recording our conversations? Is he going to try to use this in some lawsuit or whatever? And halfway when I'm driving up there that day, um, he sends me a text, hey, did you bring your bike? And that's when I knew it was going to be just a social ride because there's no way that you could record anything. And that, that put me at ease. And, um, you, you know, I'd heard and read about how he had no sense of humor at all. And I wanted to put that to the test. So I really just was trying to make fun of him as much as I could. <laughs> and and he was surprisingly funny. And then we just kind of hit it off. And uh, we're moving up to Basalt this summer. So I'm sure we'll ride together quite a lot more. And uh, he'll be putting the hurt on me. Right. You're putting the hurt on you. Uh, you're moving from Grand Junction to Basalt, uh, where he spent some time. Did you, in the in the time when you saw how well the team was doing, did you feel the need to either keep quiet or did you have the instinct to want to tell the world about what you knew? What were the pressures on you in that time? Well, there weren't really any pressures on me at that time. My story had been consistent and nobody was really interested in it. There wasn't a venue to talk about it. Um, and I really didn't think... At that time, when I was when I left the sport, certainly there was no place to go. There was no USADA, and I didn't think it was. I made a choice that worked for me, hmm. and I didn't think it was. It was institutionalized doping, and not just on postal. Of course, Lance and Postal are bearing the brunt of it today, and part of that's because of Lance's behavior and the vehemence of his denials, and and the way that he went after people. But it was part of the sport at that time in history, and and I didn't think it was my place to try to ruin you know, hundreds of people's jobs and careers. I just had to make a decision that, that was right for me. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with the former professional cyclist, Scott Mercier, who in the age of doping and cycling said no to drugs, left the sport and uh, went on to do some financial planning. I want to say that you're very much still a cyclist today, Scott, and uh, in fact, are involved in uh, this big event that is in Grand Junction, the USA Cycling Collegiate Road Nationals races. You've been a real strong supporter of collegiate racing, helped bring these races to Grand Junction, and you'll give a keynote to young cyclists. Uh, what, what do you tell young cyclists? Is it is it an anti-doping message or is it broader than that? Oh, it's it's far broader than an anti-doping message. Really, I, I kind of wrap up with, I, I talk about the differences of what makes an elite level athlete versus somebody who qualified for the Olympics. I made the Olympic team in 15 months. And I found that some of the lessons I've learned in the Peloton, particularly the ability to suffer, to just have some grit and suff, suck it up, can carry you well um, through life, whether it's in your career or personal relationships or certainly in endurance sports. Suffering is a key component to success. So I, so I talk to them about that, but then I talk about the fork in the road. We talked briefly about my confrontation with doping, and it's not so much that I thought it was cheating, although it certainly was against the rules. It's that I knew that I would be a fraud. It, it's I knew that I would be a lie. So I try to tell these kids that Carry yourself with integrity. If we look at academic scandals, our political environment, the Volkswagen emission scandals, the 2008 financial services meltdown, all of these scandals can be really traced to a breach of integrity. And if you think of the root of the word, right, Roman soldiers used it, or it was structural, where if you think of the integrity of a bridge or a dam, 
you can poke a little pinhole in a dam. Glen Canyon Dam would go down with just a hair-sized pinhole in it. The entire thing would collapse. So I really try to talk not so much about the doping, but about giving yourself choices for one thing. Get an education. That's why I'm such a proponent of collegiate cycling, because I had choices. I knew that with a degree from Cal, I could find gainful employment somewhere. I wasn't going to have to go work as a bike mechanic or a soigneur. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but I would be able to choose what I wanted to do rather than somebody making those choices for me. And you are affiliated as well with Colorado Mesa University, we should say, uh, in that link between cycling and, and academics. Um, Scott Mercier, are you, do you walk around feeling vindicated I don't know if that's the right word. I certainly feel satisfied. Um, You kind of reap what you sow, and and we've seen that um, with what happened with Armstrong and and Postal, certainly. Um, I guess I do sort of feel vindicated. I I can't lie. There were times that I wanted it to be exposed so you could see what was really going on. On the other side of that, though, is I know how much the riders today are suffering, how much the sport today is suffering. Even the collegiate riders who are coming here have fewer opportunities because we're still feeling this knock-on effect um, from the the doping scandals in cycling. Oh, interesting. The reverberations continue. It's a tarnish. Absolutely. I mean, there are fewer sponsors in the sport. It's still one of the most popular sports, certainly amongst the millennials, and it's still a fast-growing uh, segment of sport in America, but it isn't at the professional level. There's not the sponsorship dollars coming in. You see races, the Colorado race is a perfect example. It only lasted for five years. And Lance was instrumental in getting that going. So that the end of that race, you could almost directly trace to what happened in uh, cycling with the the drug scandals. You know, I wanted to make this an interview about you very much, Scott Mercier, but I do have one question. Um, In your conversations with Lance Armstrong about the doping, is he sorry he did it? You know what he's sorry for is he's sorry for the way he treated people. Um, and, and I believe him when he says that. He's not sorry that he dopes, and nor do I think that he, he should be, because he was, you know, a 22-year-old kid facing 100 years of institutionalized doping. Could he have changed it? Perhaps. You know, sometimes it just takes one person to call foul on something to, to change the, the culture. But I, I can't put the entire sins of decades of problems in a sport. And I think there's doping problems in more than one sport. I don't believe that a deflated football is the NFL's biggest problem. But um, (laughs) I I think that in some ways he's gotten exactly what he's deserved, but in some ways he's the fall guy for really an entire sport. And when you hear today of some scandal, some fraud or some lie, it's, oh, that guy is the Lance Armstrong of this, or this is the Lance Armstrong of that, Um, so he's certainly paying a penance. Thank you for being with us. It's my pleasure, Ryan. And come on out to the races over here in Grand Junction. Indeed. He's talking about the USA Cycling Collegiate Road Nationals in Grand Junction. Scott Mercier will be giving the keynote address this week there. Uh, and he is a former professional cyclist who bowed out of the sport rather than use performance-enhancing drugs Part of his mission now is to spread that anti-doping mission to young athletes. This is CPR News.
The legendary architect I.M. Pei turns 100 today. He designed some of the world's most famous buildings, including the East Wing of the National Gallery in Washington and the Glass Pyramid at the Louvre in Paris. One of Pei's first big projects was in downtown Denver, the Mile High Center, completed in 1956. And many consider Pei's National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder a masterpiece. But one of his Colorado buildings is gone forever. To tell us more about Pei's work here, I'm joined by Michael Polly, art and architecture critic for Westward. Welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me, Ryan. I want to start with... NCAR, so Pei's last Colorado building. You can't miss it if you're in Boulder. It's set on a mesa next to the Flatirons. It was completed in 67, and some may remember it from Woody Allen's movie Sleeper. Here's Pei in a 1997 documentary talking about his reaction to the spot where the building would go. When I saw the site the first time, I said, wow, (laughs) what a site. And I became so excited by it. And I said, I've never done anything like that because all my work up until then has been in the middle of cities. And then all of a sudden confronted with this opportunity of doing something in an area as pristine and spectacular as that. I wanted that job right from the very beginning. I love the passion and the smile that come through in that. Uh, apparently, though, he struggled, Michael, to come up with a design until he traveled to... Mesa Verde with his wife. Yes. What's um, the story? Well, that's the story that uh, he was uh, inspired by Mesa Verde, the deep set windows, uh, the vertical forms in the red adobe and stone. And uh, uh, then uh, interprets that in NCAR. One interesting thing, I think, is that um, he localizes uh, the building through the reference to Mesa Verde through the use of uh, native soil from the site for the uh, uh, concrete casting of the building. Oh, is that what gives it that that hue? Right. The perfect hue is because it comes exactly from the excavation for the building itself, which is then mixed with concrete to form the aggregate. So when you see the NCAR building in Boulder, think cliff dwellings to some extent. And I guess what you're saying is that this building could not have been designed for somewhere else. It's truly responding to place. Yes. And I think one of the interesting things about Pei, especially in his Colorado projects, say, because they're early in, in the arc of his career, yeah. is that he takes these international concepts in architecture and then locates them in Colorado through these different references, like the color. And so that's how a building like NCAR can both look um, ancient and futuristic at the same time, really. Yes. In fact, I was thinking on the way down here that it hadn't aged at all, that it still is a credible work of... uh, uh, contemporary architecture. How important would you say that NCAR building was to Pei's career? It's a breakthrough building. I, I, it's, it gets him a lot of international attention, though it's important to remember he was already a, a, a famous architect when he got the commission. Indeed, and had other buildings already at that point in Colorado. So let's go to his first project here, the Mile High Center, which was one of Denver's first modern office buildings. It's on the corner of 17th and Broadway. 
in Denver. Describe that building for us. Um, well, I'll describe what it looked like and now and now what it looks like. Yes, there have been changes. Yes. Um, at one point, it, it was through the block, uh, occupying maybe um, almost a half of the block, with the tower behind which was a plaza that climbed the hill. And on the plaza was a hyperbolic arch pavilion covered in stainless steel. A hyperbolic arch pavilion. That is to say something that looked pretty swanky and modern, I'm guessing. Exactly. And and up until the day uh, it was demolished in the 1980s, that pavilion... Uh, I don't think ever was allowed to have a finger mark on the glass. It was so <laughs> pristine. And what what uh, replaced it? Would it be the cash register building that, that we all know so well? No, it's that atrium addition just west on the block west of the cash register building. Okay. Uh, it is part of that Johnson, um, uh, the Philip Johnson building, the cash register building. Uh, but it extends onto the other block. And I've often thought it would have been much better uh, from a design standpoint if he had just left Pei's element there and then his building on the next block. Pei was uh, 35 when he came to design the Mile High Center, uh, aspects of which, as you say, were changed but also remain. How did he come to to do that? Oh, he had become the uh, house architect for a big New York developer uh, named William Zeckendorf. And Zeckendorf was interested in developing projects across the country. And so he had identified Denver as a place that would be a good uh, spot for his uh, development. And so he put a young pay on the project. What would you say was notable about the Mile High Center? Um First of all, the relationship of the um, the the site was two and a half acres, or still is two and a half acres, and Pay limits the tower to one end of it to create this pavilion and uh, plaza, and there was a water feature that had rainbow trout in it, <laughs> and this was his his attempt to, along with the name Mile High Center, to locate the building in Denver, the way he had with NCAR and Boulder. Because, of course, there's a lot of trout fishing in Colorado. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and my guest is Westward art and architecture critic Michael Paglia. We are talking about the architect I.M. Pei, who today turns 100. Pei designed several buildings in Colorado, including, as we've mentioned already, the National Center for Atmospheric Research in Boulder, um, I think we should talk about another project in Denver that uh, this developer, William Zeckendorf, was involved in. He was, as you say, one of the house architects. Uh, it ended up being called Zeckendorf Plaza. And That's wh- right. Where, where was this? What was the vision for it? Um, it, it was 16th and Court Place. Um, and uh, uh, it, it uh, survives. The tower survives. The tower element survives. It is, um, yeah, so on the mall. On the mall. And so, what, what businesses are there now? What would anchor it um, for us today? The, the Sheridan Hotel Got occupies it. the site. Okay. What was his uh, vision for the complex, which, again, is something that has changed over time since Pei uh, was involved? It, it was an incredibly intelligent concept from a formal perspective. So you start with this recessed ice skating rink. You jump up 
to the hyperbolic paraboloid. Another one of, of those, that, that very modernistic shape. Very modernistic, and anticipating the pyramid at the Louvre, which you had mentioned before. Oh, wow. Um, then there was the box of the uh, department store, which had been a MADNF department store, and then the tower of the hotel, which was originally built as a Hilton. In 1995, Michael, you called the demolition of Pace Building an act of barbarism. And I don't disagree with that now. And that I, includes I, the hyper... The uh, hyperbolic parabola. The, the, the hotel uh, survives. The, 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 the high-rise block survives. Yeah. Uh, but the destruction of the hyperbolic paraboloid of the skating rink, the recladding of the department store, just did tremendous damage to it as an architectural composition. Could something like that happen again today in Denver? Um, maybe not with Seckendorf, but with certainly other important modernist buildings. I, you know, in the 1990s when this happened, there was uh, – mid-century modern was not held in high regard the way it is today. This is pre-Mad Men. This is pre-Mad Men. And it, it was thought to be ugly. It was thought to be dated. This is how people felt about 50s modernism at that time. Hmm. Pay's other big Denver project came in the early 1980s, and it is the 16th Street Pedestrian Mall. At the time, a lot of cities were converting downtown streets to walkable malls. What was innovative about Pay's design for the mall? I, I think the patterning of the pavement, which is meant to refer to Navajo rugs and uh, rattlesnakes, uh, the uh, diamondback rattlesnake pattern, uh, the redstone component of that stone is Colorado uh, quarried stone. Um, so again, it was locating this international aesthetic, this late modernist aesthetic in that case, with Colorado. And uh, I, and I wanted to just go back for a second to Zeckendorf, because I forgot to mention that the hotel is made out of cast panels, concrete panels, that just like at NCAR, it was the excavation, the dirt from the excavation that was mixed to create the uh, aggregate panels. That is to say the site becomes the building. Yes. There's something so poetic about that, isn't there? About rising, it becomes part of the earth. It's of the earth and uh, could reflect uh, Pei's Chinese upbringing and and philosophical uh, perspective. Thanks for being with us. Thank you so much, Ryan, for having me. Michael Paglia is art and architecture critic for Westward, and we spoke on I.M. Pei's 100th birthday. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. There was no dedicated dance studio when Charlotte Irie arrived at CU Boulder in the 1940s. Dance classes took place in the gym, part of physical education, and you were more likely to see square dancing than plies. That changed by 1963 when Irie created the school's first degree program in dance. Charlotte Irie passed away earlier this year, and her colleagues honor her Saturday on what would have been her 99th birthday. Marta Kern founded the Colorado Dance Festival and considered Charlotte Irie a mentor. She joins us from Boulder. Hi, Marta. Hi. You met Charlotte 30 years ago. You wanted to create a large dance festival, something Colorado didn't really have at the time. And so you sought out Charlotte Irie's advice. What do you remember about that meeting? I I remember going into what was in the Academy building. They had a fire 
there uh, two years prior. And um, miraculously, the dance wing had not been burned, and the dance floors were still there, and people were still dancing. But Charlotte was so depressed about um, she, she'd brought in dance companies pretty much every year, the, you know, the cream of the crop from around the country uh, to come and teach in the in the summer times, and she just she just told me she didn't have the heart to do it again, and she saw what I was hoping to do, and so she said, well, why don't you do it? And it was so amazing, and she lent her support and her love and her wisdom and her, and the money that they normally would have paid um, dance companies to come um, through CU to me, to the dance festival, um, to start it off, which we did. Which you did. And that festival ran very successfully for many years, uh, as right, I, I mentioned. Almost 20 years. Yeah. yeah. So Irie is credited with establishing the first degree program in dance at CU Boulder in uh, 1963. About six years later, she created a master's program and separated from the physical education department. I was surprised by that. How common was it back then for universities one, to even offer dance degrees, and then, I guess, to, to lump them into physical education. They, they asked, that's where they started, and they can't, because dance was seen to be, you know, part of health, what you did for your body. And huh. so, and, and yeah, and there was lots of folk dancing, square dancing was big. In fact, Charlotte went, um, graduated from the University of Wisconsin, I believe, um, and which is where there was the first uh, um, Bachelor of Science in Dance, and they were the very first university to offer a dance major. And to give you kind of an idea of the the determination and um, just, I was thinking about Charlotte. You know, she was like this quiet, gently behind the scenes, fierce force <laughs> driving. You know, because she had this dream to um, because she'd been to the University of Wisconsin, where she there was a dance major. Yeah. Um, she really wanted to have one at CU. And so she started teaching in 1945. And I was adding up all the, the years. And after 41 years, there was an MFA in dance at CU. You know, every, every, you know, six to 10 years, there would be some major milestone that would move it forward. But Charlotte's whole sort of raison d'etre was really to educate people in Colorado about dance and, and provide opportunities for students from all over the country and the world to study with some of the, the major dance artists. Because we were in the middle of the country in Colorado. Steve Seifert, the brilliant uh, former director of the Newman Center, once told me that the Denver-Boulder area is the most geographically isolated major metropolitan area in the lower 48 States and so to and, bring these uh, the, the, this caliber of dance was a challenge. It was yeah, it was huge because people touring wise there wasn't there weren't a lot of gigs nearby for people to also go to. So it was sort of and one time I remember Charlotte, um, you know, I sort of described Boulder as kind of a flyover zone black hole in terms of um, you know funding for dance and and Charlotte would you know try to remind me that. Whenever she got depressed about trying to find money for dance, that that Boulder for the European Americans uh, who settled were mostly miners, ranchers, and scientists, and we just had to work harder to educate them about dance. About dance, you're yeah. listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are remembering Charlotte Irie, the dancer, and um, really the 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 doer, the the mover and shaker behind dance at CU Boulder. Uh, she died earlier this year, and on what would have been her 99th birthday this weekend, 
Her colleagues at CU are honoring her. What was she like as a mentor? Um, there's a part of me that thinks she's she's a formidable character and might even be a little intimidating. Was that was that the case? No, she was. Charlotte was extraordinary. I mean, she first of all, she was almost always elegantly dressed, um, and she was gracious and. Um, generous spirited and so supportive and incredibly loving. And she would, you know, she was from Oklahoma. And so she would have these wonderful expressions. When I first went to her with my schedule of what I wanted to do for the first dance festival, he, she looked at it and you know, you could tell that she really didn't know what to say. But finally she said, you've got enough stuff here to choke a horse. but she would be so supportive i mean i think the thing that was there's this wonderful famous photo of her dancing and she's she's jumping and she's looking a little bit over her shoulder and it kind of epitomizes her it's like she's this this embodiment of a burst of joy and it makes your soul sing to see her dancing she was just extraordinary and her training her pedigree in dance is really quite impressive she took classes with uh, what were considered the the big four of modern dance, uh, including Martha Graham. And she went to study with modern dance pioneer Mary Wigmann in Germany in the 1930s when she was just 17. This is actually her talking about that trip to Germany from a 2005 interview that's archived at the University of Denver. This was Hitler's period in, in Germany. And uh, we were very aware of that from the time that we got there, and um, uh, the Wigmann studio at that time was in Dresden, so uh, that's where we spent our time, and it was the, uh, at a tense time, and we were warned about if we wanted to ask questions that we had to hold up our hand and say, Heil Hitler, and if you didn't, the person just ignored you and walked away. You had to say Heil Hitler every time you asked a question. Did she talk to you much about that experience? Well, she talked a little bit about it. And the thing the thing that was so amazing to me was was that context. I mean, she went to Germany on a ship when she was 17 by herself. You know? <laughs> and I mean, that's kind of the way that Charlotte was. You know, yeah. you just you just couldn't stop her. If she had something in her mind, you know, she would do that. And and that's I think that you know, she's recognized nationally really as, you know, this extraordinary um, dance educator Deborah Jowett, who's probably one of the most respected, internationally respected dance critics uh, in the world, uh, wrote once, quote, everyone in the field of dance education, as well as many dancers and choreographers, know of her years of service in the field, end quote. And I think that it's really important to say, you know, so I long time ago wrote an article that Nancy McElroy, big shout out to her, who was the dance um, administrator at CU for the longest time and knew Charlotte best, I think. She found an old article that I wrote and, and, and I quoted Charlotte saying, we had to prove that we were legitimate, that dance is a discipline with a historic background, a scientific basis, and its own unique body of information. Once the educators had been brought into contact with the world of professional dance, the art of p- performing, there was no turning back, end quote. Mm. But it was a slog. <laughs> but it was, <laughs> it was a, really slog, a slog, right? It took years to make incremental change. I want to say, uh, just before we wrap up, we have about a minute. When CU Boulder built a new 150-seat theater on its campus in 84, they named it after Charlotte Irie. 
Right, they did. But And Charlotte said to me very quietly, she said, you know, she was such a humble person. She was so amazing. She said, Marta, you know, I, I don't know about this. She said, I've, the only time I've heard theaters being named after people is after they're dead. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, it was really an amazing kind of thing. Is it but, true that she hated the pink walls inside? Oh, God. She was so depressed. I mean, it's not that she... Well, Pink is associated with ballet yeah. and, and and girls, right? <laughs> Mostly, and and she she liked ballet, but modern dance was that was her thing, and she was such a pioneer about it, you know, from all over the world. And and she was, she said, I can't believe they painted it pink. I fought my whole life against pink. <laughs> and she really, you know, would sort of fantasize plotting, you know, like having a whole squad of people you know, repainting it in the middle of the night. In her honor. <laughs> it's really hard for her. Thank you for being with us. I really appreciate Thank it. Thank you so much. That's Marta Kern. She remembered CU Boulder dance pioneer Charlotte York Irie, who passed away earlier this year at age 98. The CU Boulder Dance Department will honor her Saturday on what would have been her 99th birthday. That's our program for today. So glad you could spend time with us. I'm Ryan Warner at CPR News. <laughs> 